Welcome to Aperia, the podcast, where we discuss the great questions of classical Christian education. We're your hosts. I'm Tim Dernland. And I'm Danielle Dillenschneider. Join us as we navigate our way through the labyrinth of questions. It's good to be with you again today. Today we're talking about the end of education, or the goal of education. Specifically, we're talking about the formation of students rather than the information of students. Danielle, it's nice to be with you again today, and um, I'm really looking forward to this topic. It's so important and sometimes so can be so heady, it's hard to get our heads wrapped around it and really embody it. So I'm glad we're going to talk about um, these high-level things of formation and then get into the more details in later episodes. Absolutely. So the first question I feel like we have to ask is, you know, I've heard that the end or the goal of classical Christian education is formation. But what do we really mean when we say education is about soul formation or virtue formation or spiritual formation? What does that even mean? That's a hard concept. So it's easy for us to say that oh yeah, our our classical Christian schools exist for formation rather than information. And we can say that to parents and um, even say it to each other and just have it wash right over us or just kind of breeze right on by. But um, where does this idea come from of of the formation of children as being the end or the goal of education? So I think you can even look as far back as Plato, Aristotle, Augustine, (laughs) you know, it's all going to be there for classical Christian education. You can see it in scripture as well. Even if you think about education, paideia being enculturation, right, you're passing on a culture that's kind of part of this. So if we think about formation and and what we really mean by that, if you think about the soul um, being formed or, or influenced by what you do, uh, and, and because we believe we're embodied souls, I think that's an important part of this. Now, Plato is not really going to have that high of a view of the body, but I think he talks about in the Republic about education as being a way in which you create a just city, a, a perfectly just society, and you know this is all just really a metaphor for the soul as well uh, in the Republic, so it's kind of fascinating, very deeply layered there. But essentially, he talks a lot about the aspect of, of the, the head and um, the chest, the affections, really are what, uh, that they're what help control the, the appetites, right? Even C.S. Lewis will talk about this in The Abolition of Man, and that through what people in his just republic would study, they would have their affections trained, right? So if they were uh, reading or, or listening to the, this story about uh, about let me see Odysseus right and uh, or or Achilles and the way that they fought in the war they would want to have the good sections of that that would cultivate their affections in a right way rather than you know you might want to cut out some sections that are are not really so true or not really good examples that's kind of one thing that that Socrates talks about a lot. And I think you also see it in Aristotle when he's talking in Nicomachean Ethics about the way in which you uh, cultivate virtue in students and the goal of education being helping students to feel the right things towards the right in the right ways, the right times, that sort of thing. Um, and, and so virtue is more of a, a moral habit that can be cultivated. 
Um, so I think that's kind of where a lot of this comes from. Augustine picks up on it and talking about the ordering of the loves and how, you know, if, you're right, if your affections are rightly ordered, you will love the right things in the right way. And so I think that's kind of where a lot of this comes from in the classical tradition, this concept of, of forming a soul to love what's right. You covered a lot there, and I'm looking forward to getting into all that. But you said something at the very beginning that mm-hmm. sometimes, again, it can be easy to, to rush past. The idea that what we do, our actions, actually influence our soul. That's a really uh, unique concept, and uh, but an important concept, that uh, our embodied souls are, uh, are affected by our actions. And so that's not just what we study, but how we study it, um, the culture, the paideia that we have in the classroom, in our schools, and again, training the affections and what we love isn't just affecting our body and our mind or, or, or our, our, our hearts, but affecting our soul itself. So that's a, that's a fun concept. When Once you start getting your head wrapped around that and really understanding it and having it forefront in your mind, it affects everything you do. And so as a teacher, as a parent, as a student, if we have that in the forefront of our mind, knowing that we're actually um, making an impact to form or deform our, our soul uh, itself, it makes a difference. So, um, so let's, let's start a little bit with uh, some of the ancients still and then, and then move, in, move into um, uh, maybe Augustine and Lewis. But um, when you talked about uh, Plato and Aristotle, of course, Aristotle, you know, he, as you mentioned, he wanted us to understand that doing the right thing wasn't enough. He had to do the right thing for the right reason. And so it's, uh, it's really uh, fascinating how those things were being touched on. And then when, when Christ came, um, he obviously showed us the, the true and, and better way um, to think of those things. And then Augustine helped formalize it for education. So um, let's jump in with the ancients just a little bit and then, uh, and then get into some scripture. Is that all right? Sounds good. So, talk talk a little bit more, uh, a little bit more about uh, Plato and Aristotle. Um, as we, uh, I just wanted to wanted to point out for myself uh, more mm-hmm. than more than anything else, the idea that we're influencing and, and forming our souls with our with our actions here mm-hmm. on Earth. Absolutely. So, I think Plato, as he writes his Socratic dialogues always portrays Socrates as somebody who is immensely interested in educating the young, right, and trying to help those who are seeking truth and seeking to know. And I think so So that's one way in which, it, it very clearly to me, he's always thinking about this, what, what is forming people. And I think that's where, you know, as you get into the Republic and he's kind of asked the question, is it really better to be just or unjust because it seems like a lot of ju- unjust people have a pretty good life and we see that in scripture too right yeah. why, why do the just uh, the unjust thrive why mm-hmm. why are they succeeding in life um, is, is some questions throughout uh, the bible from solomon and david and job others right mm-hmm. so and 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 uh, as you're talking about uh, socrates mm-hmm. it's interesting even then there was this idea of how is he forming the children mm-hmm. He was put to death because he thought he was forming them and helping them come along, whereas others thought he was deforming them and stirring them up in a, in a bad way. 
So um, it's uh, it's it's a thousands of year old discussion that we're having right now. Oh yes, yes, and so I think Socrates he gets into this idea of okay, if we're really trying to see if a just man is is better off than an unjust man, it would be easier for us to see a just soul kind of blown up into larger size. And so what we're going to do is we're going to create this just city. And uh, that's where you kind of get this concept of the tripartite soul. And you have the three different, um, uh, you know, sections of this just city where you have at the bottom uh, the, the people who are just the tradesmen. They take care of the, the basic daily needs. And uh, in, in Plato's terminology, there's those are the appetites in the soul, right? The things like you need uh, for for sleep or, or for food, those sorts of things, basic bodily appetites. They're good, they're, they're necessary, but they're not that great. They're the lowest kind of on the, the order there. And then above, you have this sort of emotions, the spirited aspect of the soul. And in Plato's city, these are, are the guardians. They're the ones that are supposed to, to keep the city safe and also uh, keep everybody in rule. And they're supposed to, in a perfectly just city, be in submission to the rulers, those who are, are wise and who uh, in, in the soul is sort of the reasoning, the intellectual part of the soul, right? So if they all have their uh, accompanying virtues, right? So if there's, if, if those who are ruling the city and if, if the intelligent part of the soul has wisdom, and then if the emotional part of the soul has courage and the, the guardians have courage, and then everybody has temperance. Uh, they have self-control. They're staying within their own realms. They're not taking what's not supposed to be theirs, taking over a role or a duty that's supposed to be theirs, but you know, sticking to what is appropriate for their own station skill. Uh, then there will be justice in the soul, which I think is kind of interesting. And so as we get into that and we think about that in terms of how would that practically look if you were to really create a city like this, Plato goes into, well, You've got to make sure that the spirited learn certain things in school, and that they have certain they, they have gymnast, gymnastics and music, and that they are going to be formed through the kinds of music they listen to, and uh, to to be more courageous and to be ready to go fight. Um, and they are also going to uh, learn from other stories about how um, how to lead well in, in terms of battle, but also follow and submit to rulers who are above them. And then you really have those who are the wisest in the city, aka the, the intellectual part of the soul, that's uh, learning a lot more about uh, wisdom, and that takes a long time. And I just think all of that's very interesting. It, it's kind of this sort of thought experiment of how would you create this perfectly just society. But it all goes into something that Lewis talks about in The Abolition of Man, and this idea of men without chests and that you think, educators maybe think that they could just only focus on the intellect and only give them facts and information and that's, you know, value-free education and it's just facts. And he says that's impossible and we, we, we create these men without chests and expect of them virtue and enterprise, this idea that you, you can't really only give people information and expect them to be good. You have to cultivate their affections through the things that they, they study and the things that they do daily. Um, I think it's interesting that, that Socrates talks about gymnastics as a part of that mm -hmm. uh, study. And so that, that really cultivates um, the, the affections in a sense that helps you to um, have the right response to what is true and good and beautiful. 
and the right response to things that are ugly and false and just completely wrong. I think uh, that is something that is really important for us to consider as educators that we need to help cultivate their affections through the, the stuff that we teach them, right? And the way we teach them. And, and uh, so kind of getting into what that looks like exactly is maybe a, a question for the other episode, but uh, kind of important origin there. I love that idea of uh, training in the gymnastics, the gymnastiki and, and the embodiment that was important. And then also the poetic knowledge with the, the, the song and singing and, and that, that tripartite soul. And um, that knowledge is just just the starting point, just the beginning. And if it leads into belief and then action, then, then we really start taking it from the head into the chest, into the heart, and, and, and then into the action. And then it cycles back into a deeper and better knowledge because we have that belief, because we've embodied it and had that action, had the, the poetic uh, knowledge from song and music and, and, um, and different arts as well. It helps to really form, form out our soul so we're not deformed as humans. And I think a lot of it, you know, when you talk about formation and deformation and, and that hole that you want to be, that circle, that perfect circle, if we have, if we have that piece is missing, our students will, will literally be deformed. We, uh, as the teachers and as the parents, um, can be deformed without really pressing into this. Um, so we, we see this in Scripture as well, right, um, when, when Christ is talking about it. And this, uh, this idea, I love the idea that we in schools and as parents are being used um, to set the table for the Holy Spirit to work. So we know that, that God is sovereign and has created us um, in his image. But, um, but as, uh, as the parents, as the educators, uh, it takes that supernatural to help, um, to, to, to form the soul out. So just setting the table for the Holy Spirit to work and how we do things is as important as as what we do. So mm-hmm. let's t- let's talk about scripture a little bit. Any mm-hmm. any scripture that comes to mind as we talk about this? Well, when I think about uh, scripture that thinks about this idea of formation, I I always go back to really two places. One, and obviously this idea of the embodied souls. It's just the creation of Adam, and just how God breathe into the dirt and it's 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 that 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 is man right we're not just you know here's a body let's place a soul in there but it's it's god's breath plus the dirt that Mm. makes the Mm. person right so it's this idea of of we're both physical matter and spiritual deeply intertwined and so i think that means that what we do in our body will really matter and i also think too about uh, Deuteronomy 6, the, the Shema, as they, they call it, uh, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. So this idea that, that loving God is a, a 
very crucial part to every interaction every day. And they would even say this, as my pastor says, they would say this in the morning to each other, right? Hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. They would have that memorized, right? And so I think just the very aspect of saying that and consistently saying, you need to be talking about this, teaching this to your children, doing it constantly, for it to really take root in your life. Um, and, and I think that, that that sort of consistent embodied practice is something that results in your, your affections being trained, right? So even as Lewis and, and Plato and Aristotle would, would acknowledge, right, you, you rule the appetites through the affections, right? Not just by a knowledge of what your appetites are going to want, but through training your heart to love the right things, you can rule that, right? So you can help, the Holy Spirit, I think, can work through your efforts, right, to help you love the right thing. I think, am I saying that in a yeah. way that makes sense? Yeah, I love it. I love it. I, um, food comes to my mind when you're talking about that. Mm-hmm. So uh, I, can, I can love eating cotton candy all day long, or, or uh, as I do, chocolate, right? But... But um, I can I can also train myself to love what is good for me mm-hmm. by um, not consuming that as much and consuming mm-hmm. more uh, vegetables and different things and and in some ways in some ways it's like that for our students uh, and for for us uh, each and every day when when we're fallen it's easy for us to uh, have misplaced desires um, and so to really cultivate those desires similar to exercising if we get up and and walk or run every day, we start to uh, enjoy it and then start to um, really desire it. Uh, and, and as we think about desire, there's a, a more modern author, James K. A. Smith, um, who uh, I know you and I have both read with uh, You Are What You Love and Desiring the Kingdom and other works. And the whole idea of, of being recalibrated on what is true, good, and beautiful and, and and that we literally are what we love. We um, our desires inform us in those ways. So, um, I, I know we were talking about uh, Smith's work earlier. Do you have thoughts on on him specifically and some of his ideas? I feel like one of the the light bulb moments that I had with classical Christian education came when I read "Desiring the Kingdom" by James K. Smith. It, it was just really helpful and insightful. He makes the argument that we're liturgical beings. And that that was kind of a, a new claim for me. Yeah, explain that. Because I, I love that term, but ex- explain it. Mm-hmm. So liturgy, I had to really look up the word because I thought, you know, I don't really know what I'm saying when I say liturgy. It, it really comes from, you know, more of a Latin root where it means public working, which I was like, oh, that's kind of interesting. But it's really the, the word they used for ministers and, and, you know, a public work that people would do together, I guess, corporately or uh, observing the minister do something right uh, in order for worship right so the way Smith uses it though essentially is uh, through habits like we are liturgical beings and that we constantly have habits we constantly have works that we're doing and that we are formed by liturgy so we are formed by the habits we do which is very Aristotelian and so I think that's kind of interesting when you think about how what you do constantly is going to form your affections. It's going to order your loves in, in a very Augustinian sense. So I think it's 
it was helpful for me because he says, you know, everything's really a liturgy. You could walk around the mall, and uh, he has this really brilliant uh, passage where, you know, you walk past, you know, that you walk through this vestibule and past all these different sanctuaries, and you see all your different depictions of what's holy and what's beautiful and what's good. Yeah, all the icons, (laughs) right? Yeah. So I was, oh, that's really true. And that when you kind of go to a mall and you shop, it forms your desires and what you love. Uh, Similarly, I think, if you think about what you do first thing in the morning, if it's I'm going to wake up and start scrolling through my phone and look at social media, then it's going to start to form my desire for attention, approval, that sort of thing. That's that's the start of your liturgy right there. What do you do first thing in the morning? You and I talked about this maybe a year ago, and that was very influential to me when you mentioned that. Um, and uh, just that idea of how are you starting your day? What direction um, are you stepping in mm-hmm. as you wake up? Mm-hmm. Do you pick up your phone mm-hmm. um, and jump right into social media or... Do or emails. Go f- or, yeah, or emails, yes. I tend to do that. <laughs> You're looking at me. Yep, you've probably gotten some early emails. <laughs> um, so, uh, yeah, or are you going for a walk and co- contemplating? Or are you um, enjoying God's goodness uh, in food? Um, whatever whatever the case may be, that, mm-hmm. that whole liturgy and the forming of us. I love that idea that you talked about of the mall, too. Mm-hmm. And even a mall itself is so individualized. Um, you can, you can, you can select where you want to eat and your friend can select something else and then you can sit together and just, it's such a, um, individualized approach to life. Even that forms us. So this idea of formation, it's everywhere. We are being formed, um, not just informed by everything we do and, and, uh, folks that are around us and, and, uh, it's, it's a, a beautiful concept I'm looking forward to digging into this more and more. Um, one other thought I had, I know we're talking a lot to classical Christian educators and, and we hear a lot about the trivium and grammar, logic and rhetoric. We touched briefly on, on um, knowledge and, and belief and action. Sometimes I link those with the, the grammar and the logic and the rhetoric and all three should be going on at once. And, uh, and be real cyclical and drive us into a more, more formed state. Um, and so just, you know, the grammar is the knowledge. Mm-hmm. And if we just stop at that, we're just informing, right? Mm-hmm. And then if we drive into the why behind all of it and, and the belief behind that knowledge and then take action, that's when the flywheel starts spinning. It's, it's those actions, being embodied souls that help form us and form each other in a, in an individual way, but hopefully in a communal way so that we can have this community and paideia and culture of formation individually, corporately, and ultimately as the bride of Christ so that we can be a, a fully formed bride presentable to our, our bridegroom. And, and it's, um, it's, it's a high calling. It's, uh, it's um, not easy. But if we don't even know and and start with the point that we're forming rather than informing, then we're already taking the wrong step in the wrong direction in our liturgical life. Absolutely. It, that reminded me all of uh, Kevin Clark's and Robbie Jane's book, uh, Liberal Arts Tradition, right, where he talks about education beginning in wonder, uh, moving through worship and ending in wisdom, that sort of idea of... Um, 
uh, of just where do we start education? Do we start it with this idea of wonder, of humility, of awe at God and his creation? Uh, that is, is an important, affectionate sort of starting point, right? That we have to begin in that, and that throughout education, it's about forming us to worship, to love what's right, um, and, and that leads to wisdom, I think, and... I, I, I love that, that mm-hmm. idea of wonder and keeping that in the classroom. Chesterton mm-hmm. has this great uh, collection of essays mm-hmm. and he just simply walked around and at a slow pace and wrote about small little things that he saw and did it with wonder and keeping that wonder in our education, in our homes, with our children, with ourselves, that, that, that great awe and wonder mm-hmm. at, at the simple things, at great things helps us to um, be more formational in our education. Yeah, and I, I think that's a really important point because when, when people hear liturgy, and I know I'm one of those people, when I first heard it especially, when people hear the things like we're liturgical beings or we should be, we should practice liturgy and things like that, we oftentimes think um, liturgy is cold and dead, um, especially in, if you think about like high church sort of liturgy. What's your perspective or take on that? I, I I love the idea of uh, of liturgy. There are it, it does sometimes get a uh, a bad rap, uh, right? And um, so oh that's cold, and oh I just I don't want to be rote in my worship. I want to have that sense of aliveness. But we're right down here near near Pensacola as we're recording this, right? And you think about the Blue Angels, and they're moving in formation with intent, very precise, and moving together in what they do. If they didn't move that way, that could be a real disaster. So having, having a, a liturgy in a communal setting is really important um, so that we can be formed together. But also, it takes a lot of uh, consistent etchings. Again, back to Aristotle and, and the idea of character. And if you keep marking in the same place on a rock, you eventually etch into it and create character. And that's what we want. You can't do it from a one-time um, experience, just consistent uh, repetition is important. Yeah, I agree. And one thing that I think Smith said that really changed my perspective on it too was when you're participating in liturgy, you're not really doing it for yourself. Oftentimes you are being welcomed into the divine story. It's unfolding. You're a partaker in it. Remember that, recognize that even if you don't feel that way, Today, it might not mean that you will always feel that way, one, because it's just an imperfect glimpse of this this perfect story, right? And two, you're participating in this liturgy corporately for other people too, right? So when you sing, you're not just singing for yourself. Um, you are singing as, as an act of worship, but you're also singing in a sense that it directs the people next to you to God, right? It shows that this faith that we are partaking in is not just an individual faith, it's a corporate faith, and that God is saving us corporately, his body. Mm-hmm. And I think that is something that's beautiful too, and that it's, it's not selfish, it's not about you. It's about how what you sing and what you say is spoken to your brother and sister in Christ. And I think that was something really beautiful, I think, in this time with things like COVID and, and even where, where I'm at a church, you know, where there's separate and there are days where the music is so loud. I'm like, I just want to hear my brother and sister singing, you know, like I just want to hear them because that blesses and encourages me more knowing that I'm not going it alone. You know, there are other people saying and singing these beautiful truths to God and to one another. Right. 
That's beautiful. And that, uh, that idea of loving others, you know, as, as Christ, you referred to Deuteronomy earlier, and as Christ brings that up with the greatest commandment to love God, and, and the second is like it to love your neighbor. Um, that idea of loving others, and ultimately, as you alluded to, the humility um, of loving others and, and not just living for ourselves. Um, those two things uh, can be the, the root of all the virtues and being morally more formed as uh, virtuous humans, fully formed souls. So I'm, I'm really looking forward to, to digging into this with you. And, um, and uh, I'm going to leave you with the last word on this. Is that all right to wrap up, wrap up this podcast? Absolutely. So I hope that this helps understand or explain, uh, helps people understand what it means when we say that ed- education is about formation. The habits, the things that we do every day form us to love, whether we love the wrong things or whether we love the right things. And if education can help form the affections to love what is good, what is true, what is beautiful, then it results in a more flourishing life. Uh, Eudaimonia, right? This idea that you flourish, as Aristotle would say. Um, I I think that's something that we often neglect in education. We think of education as just being something that people go to school for eight hours a day, and then you're done, and you go on to the next stage of life. But if we really consider that education has a very formational role in what we love and what we think of as good and the kind of good life we want to live, then I think it will change the way that we actually teach. And it might call into question what we really experienced education as ourselves and what we thought education was all about. So that's what we're going to talk about in the coming episodes. Thanks, Danielle.